Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today's podcast features a conversation with Dr. Bruce Damer that was held last Monday evening in our live salon. And while Bruce has made over 30 appearances on these podcasts and uh, actually was uh, very instrumental in the founding of these podcasts, well, it's been a year and a half since he's been back to bring us up to speed on his latest activities, which include a recent presentation at the IONS conference, participation in the selection of the next Mars landing site, his origin of life research in the Australian outback, and the Shulgin chip. <laughs> I think that you're going to enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. So uh, let, let's, let me rewind and go back to you, Bruce, and, start, and, and ask, uh, okay, what, what's, what's the latest you've been up to? Uh, you were at the IONS conference, right? Yeah, and for, for the listeners in the salon here, uh, it's the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Uh, it has a conference every two years, and this was huge. It was like 750 people. And they were an institute founded by Edgar Mitchell, uh, the Apollo 14 uh, lunar module commander, who on the way back to the Earth had what was later described as a samadhi in space. He had a complete union experience. Uh, but he was a real gearhead like Lorenzo and me in the early days. You know, he was a complete gearhead pilot for the Navy, and uh, he uh, was looking outside the window, and the spacecraft was rotating. It's called the sort of barbecue mode, where they keep the uh, sun on moving on the side so it doesn't get too hot on one side. So out that little triangle, that little window, he could see the Earth and Moon going past because they were in between. And then on the other when they came on the other side, he could see fantastic fields of stars, like, like you can't ever see from Earth. And then he had the thought come into his mind that the molecules and atoms of my body and the body of my crewmates and the spacecraft and everything else was made in a previous generation of those little stars out there, past generations. And then he had this awakened experience where he like, completely realized he was one with the whole universe from a real nerd gearhead perspective, which I love. I just love this stuff. And there's actual video or film of him looking out the window on Apollo 14, and he's got this great smile on his face. He's having the experience, and actually somebody was running the high eight camera and caught this. And so I showed this. I, did, I was the open, opening speaker for IONS on, on a week ago, Friday. And I showed this wonderful piece in his narration of what happened to him. So he came back and didn't know what had happened to him. And he had a friend at Rice University. And as Lorenzo knows, Rice is full of uh, kind of uh, interesting characters uh, in Houston. And he asked this character professor at Rice, what happened to me? And he said, you had what's called a samadhi. You had like a non-dual union with something bigger than you. And so he decided to form an institute called IONS, an Institute of Noetic Sciences. And he called the experience Noetics. And so for the last 50, 45 years, they've sponsored all the paranormal research you can put your finger on, you know, or you can, you can shoot at, it, from Dean Radin to Russell Targ to now our friend Lauren Carpenter, uh, who's doing all these devices to try to detect if there's a background field what when you have a big event does it wobble more you know so is there some kind of etheric field is is young synchronistic field real uh and can we measure can we use it and at this uh conference so that the the opening talk went very well because i just did storytelling i just sat on a stool with a light on me and told the story of when i was nine and i had my first contact with this field and when I was 10, I had another type of contact. When I was 11, I had a third type. And I realized by that time that this is how you interact with this thing. And I've led my life in connection with that field ever since because I figured it was heck of a lot smarter than I was. 
and it was going to just guide me through life and it's guided some remarkable things because I trust in it and it's not God and it's not I don't know what it is it's something else I mean it's it's not really embodied it's just flowing all the time and setting up synchronous events constantly uh, just out ahead of you so Bruce let me let me just uh, interrupt you for a second when you're talking about synchronistic events and when we're done here tonight, you may want to want to go out to the psychedelicsalon.com and listen to the podcast I posted today, which was oh. last Monday night's Eric Davis talk. Right. And Eric talked about specifically what you're saying about Robert Anton Wilson having a moment like that and Philip K. Dick having a moment like that. And I should add that Eric just a few years ago got his, his doctorate degree from Rice University. <laughs> yeah. So synchronicity abounds. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I couldn't pass up on that. So, you know, beyond all that, the, all the characters, the usual characters you'd expect at Ions were there. And I was at a reception and up from behind me came Rupert Sheldrake. <laughs> and it was, I, I think he's, he's, he's British enough that he needs to be introduced. You know, like Freeman Dyson never spoke to Albert Einstein because he was never introduced. Uh, so I, I'd seen him across the room, and I'd never spoken to him. You know, I know uh, Ralph. I mean, Ralph was here two weeks ago at, at the house, and I, I knew Terrence back in the day, but never the third member of the trialogue. And so there was a Ion's researcher that sort of towed him over, and we had this most delightful connection. And somebody else from Ion's was observing this and said this was the most significant moment of his of the conference for him. It says he related it later and he said, because what Rupert said was that as a scientist, he realized it is possible to communicate from the heart as well as the head, because that's what I had done. I decided to come straight from the heart and and really give the audience an experience of the field itself. So the, the, the second thing that Rupert, I guess I might as well finish, so the second thing that Rupert Sheldrake said was something, the other thing new that I learned was that life started as a community, as a network. Uh, rather than Let me interrupt. Has, had Rupert seen any of your work before then or, or read any about this? No. Okay. And, and so he was fascinated. He said, if life started as a community and a network, it's a really new idea. And I said, yeah, you're, your epigenetic field that you talk about could have its origins, you know, if it's real, and we're talking about the field, uh, in the fact that life started as a network in collaboration, as a densely ramified network, as Terence would have said, <laughs> and uh, in reference to trilogue conversations. Uh, and he said, we could even test it. I said, what do you mean? He said, we could grow your progenotes your first protocells in one dish you'd have progenotes that were sort of exposed to others this is the boot up phase of life that we're proposing and then you'd have an isolated one and the isolated one would evolve slower than the ones that had some kind of uh, join point Um, and it's a way to test the emergence of the field itself so that was fascinating and oh there's a there's a third thing that uh, Rupert said which was, and I had said, well, I got to know your work because Lorenzo Haggerty and I, one weekend in 2007 or something, uh, he flew up, we were, he was going to the MAPS conference, we were both going to MAPS, and we spent the weekend flipping cassettes and digitizing the trialogues tapes that, that Ralph Abraham had brought over. And we did 90 tapes, and Lorenzo explained that because he was over 60, he would get up and pee twice a night. And as a result, we could, <laughs> we could do tape because you had to flip the tapes. And then Rupert said something really quite nice, which was similar to what Ralph told us, Lorenzo, which was those trialogues uh, recordings having been published have provided me more opportunities to meet people and to speak. I've been invited to do more things in my career since then than any other thing. And he said, I want to thank you. I want to thank you and Lorenzo for doing that because it has had a big impact on my life. 
Wow. Yeah, isn't that something? <laughs> that, that really blows me away, Bruce. I didn't know that he even noticed that we put him up there. It, 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 it he did, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's really something. You have to tell Ralph that story. Yeah, and Ralph said the same thing. And he said, I have more followers on social media for trialogues than any of my work in math or the Akashic <laughs> record or anything. It was you know, that's kind of, kind of sad when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what he has done, you know, it's amazing. So, uh, well, thank you for telling me that. I appreciate it, Bruce. So that's the report from IONS. Uh, <laughs> just a phenomenal time. It's the first time I've done a direct transmission in public like that. You know, you, you've seen me do my storytelling in, right. in little private groups. So it's the first time I did what I call realm bending, where you're not only telling a story, you're letting a field go out into the audience and I could I could watch the interaction of the field and the audience even though I could still only see the first two rows you know because you've done a lot of public speaking in front of big groups back in in your telecom days back in the day yeah <laughs> but there's there's a, a method where you feel the field coming through you and going through the audience and what happens is you you feel it landing in each individual and you can see them like little dots on a matrix. And then as it is, the transmission keeps flowing, they start smushing, smudging together. The dots start decohering and they, people start to come into union with the entire group. And this is what I'm sure that uh, Freddie Mercury did and Elton John did, you know, in these great movies that have been about their lives that, they could elevate an entire audience. You know, they could do that with their art. And a, a holy roller preacher can do that. You know, there are people that can do that. It might be called charisma or performance or something. But what I do is I track what is going on. And each story is threaded in based upon what is going on and what is coming back and what is coming as messages from the synchronous field, like tell this one now. And, Terence did the same thing. I mean, you can tell that, in, and for me, Terence was my mentor, my teacher, even though most of my understanding of Terence came after his death. Uh, but I just uh, admired uh, to the ends of the earth his ability to thread story together and then bring it back at the end. It's just, so, and put a bow on it. It's just <clears throat> so beautiful. And so that I, that I have sought to, to uh, reach some kind of acuity on that. Uh, in the last uh, 20 years. So in this in this group, surprising you, you don't know what the effect is. They all, when I finished, just 35 minutes, they all leapt to their feet and applause. And I've never, that's never happened. You know, now, you were, you were actually opening for Deepak Chopra, right? Yeah, so Deepak, I knew what Deepak was going to do. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just saying, it, it makes it kind of tough for him to follow your act, Bruce. <laughs> Well, here's here's what actually happened. Uh, I knew I had been in touch with Deepak, I don't know, the previous week saying, what are you going to cover? Because I'm going to do something new. Um, and he's, he was going to cover some long thing about physics and stuff. And I realized it was going to be just all very mental. And it was a little difficult. Um, so actually during the storytelling, I sent part of the message back to Deepak because he was backstage. And a, a particular reference that would have landed with him, because I, I know his, his personal life, some of his personal history. And when I actually came off stage and I went back through the curtain, there he was. And there's a, uh, the board chair of uh, IONS uh, took a picture of us, but D Deepak sort of looked at me and he said, that was beautiful. I loved your story and we embraced uh we have this connection we have a heart connection and we embraced and then he was so soft he was like just a soft different deepak than you normally see and it was a beautiful connection and then they they took the, i put that picture up on facebook of the two of us very soft uh and then he went out and did his thing for an hour and it was very very tons of slides and all about sort of physics and, and kind of a little wishy-washy. I mean, he can't really do science. I mean, he doesn't have the training or doesn't have the credibility. Uh, and it's almost a shame 
if he could come from the heart more, uh, just come from his personal story than trying to be something he's not in a way. But he's he said he wants to get together. And he's down in San Diego, not from not far from you. Lorenzo. Yeah, he just he lives just up the road. I've I've never met him. But what you were just saying is is really great advice for everybody. You know, we we all in this day and age, particularly the psychedelic community, we tend to get in our heads way too much. And uh, mm-hmm. I think the heart uh, is exactly right what you're talking about. Uh, I I'd like to get back to this, but but just so that we don't get diverted, because I'm curious myself. I haven't uh, been able to keep up with you last uh, you know month or so. Uh, what's what was the deal with the Mars, the new Mars mission, and you were on on a committee there to find a landing site? Is that right? Yeah, uh, I I served on a landing site team for a year and a half or so. Presented at the two big meetings, the final site selection meetings, and. Uh, I, the viewership group here might not know, I work in the origin of life in biochemical and geologically informed models for how life might have started on the earth. And I've been working on it for a long time. And we have a model in publication that's actually having very good tests. Uh, we, we can elongate polymers in wet, dry cycles in hot spring pools, you know, in the wild, you know, in, in Places like Rotorua and New Zealand, we've been able to form RNA from its building blocks. Uh, and so the whole field has now shifted towards this return to Darwin's warm little pond. So there was I a year and a half ago in Pasadena in front of 300 people. And I hadn't been at a Mars landing site meeting since 2003 when uh, the uh, Murray and Opportunity and Spirit were sites were chosen so it was like a shock like there were 25 of us in that one i was just invited as an observer at the time but so this time i was presenting where can life start on mars given the latest science and where to look and we argued is is that one is that their primary mission is looking for life it is and uh but there's sort of political and scientific uh interest in doing a ton of geology and doing geology in Mars history is not the same as looking for evidence for life. Uh, because if you're looking for evidence for past life, you have to go actually to one location that will likely preserve it. And that's a old hot spring, uh, a preserved fossilized hot spring, which we found opportunity Rover found evidence for in 2006. And we were arguing we need to go back literally to where Opportunity is sitting and go and break rocks in those outcrops, which are like an old Yellowstone, because that's where we'll find what are called stromatolites, these texture maps or textures of a microbial map community. And uh, our team did not prevail. We, we ended up in the final round of three, but the Jezero Crater team uh, prevailed uh, mainly because they're going to an outwash delta that, where a river went into a crater that, that was full of water. And they'll do a lot of interesting uh, geology in Mars history, but they won't be able to find much in the way of biopreservation there. Uh, so it's, they're collecting samples, which will take a long time to get returned. So that, that was a, a disappointment, but not unexpected. You know, if we'd had two rovers going, we could have sent one back to Columbia Hills and one to Jezero Crater. But, you know, budgets being what they are. What what does one of these these shots cost? The whole project from from launching the thing to getting the samples back and analyzing them? The MSL class rover, which Curiosity is one of them on the surface, they're 1,600 pounds. I mean, they're big. It's about a $2 billion price tag for that mission. Uh, which is, of course, you know, nothing in a lot of contexts these days. Um, but it's it's the last actual big mission to Mars NASA has on the books. So the Mars program is really winding down now. And there's other solar system missions going, but it's, there's one going to uh, fly around Titans and that little drone in the atmosphere of Titan. That's really exciting, about 10 or 15 years. And NASA's always, uh, ever since uh, 1969, have been sort of on the chopping block for funds, you know, once they had their spectacular success. And when I was, I was in law school down in Houston in, in the Navy Reserve, and in our unit was the, uh, 
man who ran the ground communications for the Apollo flights, and uh, he was the central communicator for the ground station. So we got a really close look at the whole thing, the program, and and uh, heard uh, various and sundry recordings and saw videos, and so the whole thing was very real to me and alive. And uh, I hate to see that whole culture die out. Although you you've explained to me uh, before why a uh, uh, a base on the moon doesn't seem practical. I, everybody's talking about it again now. Can can uh, I entice you to say a little bit about that? Yeah, it's um, it's annoying that every time we get a Republican administration, uh, there's this whole focus on the moon. I have no idea why. I think it's because of certain congressional districts needing jobs. But the the moon is a harsh mistress. You know, as who, who wrote that was Heinlein. <laughs> wrote that he just lived up the road here actually he lived up on bonnie dune uh, the moon is a harsh mistress and it's not a good it's not a good place to get fuel um, in fact we were at a meeting at colorado school of mines last month where one of the smartest people at nasa basically did a he basically uh, falsified the idea that we can go into dark shadowed regions and mine water ice uh, and I said to my lunar mining buddy, I said, well, what do you think? I mean, you just, there's just not realistic for the equipment. And which was, I knew back in 2006 when we did a lunar ice driller design uh, at Marshall. So it's just a completely, I, 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 you know, asteroids are the thing. Asteroids are full of ice and organics uh, and minerals and things like that. And the, the water on the moon is from asteroid impacts that then settle down on the moon in these shadowed regions anyway and they're whizzing past the earth all the time and they're just loaded with the stuff that made us that fell into those little pools that made us four billion years ago that's what we need to go and lasso you know we need to that we came up with a design of putting a fabric enclosure around an asteroid and putting in gas and then detumbling them and then blowing on them so we can move them like a spaceship uh like a like a sailing ship actually uh, and then extract from them by managing the chemistry and the, t the temperature. And so we've come up with this universal system and we're trying to get it promoted and get a company off the ground to work with the DOD and others to get this as a business. As we can also encapsulate satellites and, and manage them and repair them that way. So that's uh, my young friend Carlos Calva is set, heading up that company. Uh, but the moon thing is sort of always annoying and the other the other because it's so impractical uh operating on the surface of the moon uh it's like a death trap for equipment and one of the people i hired for one of my projects was the geologist jack schmidt who was on apollo 17 and he described how like things are just breaking down after three days you know the cuffs on his spacesuit and by the way i'm wearing my my special um I don't know if you can see it. This is my spiritual flight suit that we had at at, um, at Convergence in Orcas, and you can see my. This is a, a special. This is to Terrence McKenna's logo type. Uh, the Octo Shroom, the mushroom body uh, cap on the octopus. That that came from his letterhead, right? That came from his letterhead. This is a nice diversion from all this seriousness. Uh, see, it's got a face. See that? Yep. And so Aaron Tain and Rosma worked together, put it into an illustrator file from Terrence's, the few of Terrence's letters that survived. And we made it into a patch for this wonderful outfit that I'm wearing, which is my my flight suit. Uh, Rosma's calling them spacesuits. Uh, what is she calling them? Outer space or inner spacesuits or something. And that's that patch of that fellow who came out to visit you. And I got patches like on different parts of this. Uh, now I'm totally off topic to you. <laughs> that that we, we were uh, out in space and then you just kind of took us out a little farther and left us there, Bruce. So uh, what what uh, is the main, I mean, you've, you've, you've been doing the original life work. Uh, you've been, been doing work with, with NASA. Uh, now you're talking about uh, a private company to possibly get into the space uh, business. Uh, how does how do 
companies like SpaceX and all interface with NASA, there's got to be a lot of overlap there is my guess. Oh, yeah, it's it's wonderful. I mean, what SpaceX has done, returnable first stages and flight capsules and everything, lowering costs, and it's just fantastic what they've done and what Elon's done. And I was uh, last month up in Kent, Washington, visiting um, Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' space company, the founder of Amazon, who's the richest man in the world. I mean, I think he's worth $400 billion or something. And I got a wonderful tour of the factory where they're making the new Shepard and the Glenn, the new Glenn engine. And there's a test firing stand. And I got to sit in the crew capsule for the vehicles. And, you know, it was just a wonderful visit. And he's such a fan. I think it's his Jules Verne or H.G. Wells' Voyage to the Moon, where they had the bullet-shaped. <laughs> where they shot it, yeah. So what Jeff did was he hired, like, an artist to make a steam like full the most steampunk spacecraft you could imagine it's it's full size uh bullet shaped 19th century spacecraft you go in there's a nice plush couch and there's handles to pull things and there's dials and gauges and brass it looks like an old ship from 1895 or a jules verne spaceship for sure It, it is and on the bottom there's a flame a real flame coming out so my my host who took me on this tour said, oh, you can go inside. So I went inside and I pulled the lever. I pulled the great big lever. It turned off the flame. And then when we came back from the tour, there was this ticking sound and there were all these Blue Origin employees trying to relight the igniter. <laughs> and I realized I'd broken Jeff Bezos' spaceship. You know? <laughs> where, where, where do the the people come from, the talent that they're getting to build and design these spaceships for these, these private companies now, they, you know, they, it took a lot of people to do this. Where did they all come from? Where do they gather these engineers and scientists from? They're from the whole world. I, there's such a passion for this kind of stuff in every country. I mean, there's really no country that does not have an astrobiology network or astronomy societies or space societies and there's such a passion for it and so there's no shortage of of people to work on this so at blue origin the people were there's a super high buzz for these people they're they're like super aware super considerate super smart two thousand people in that facility and my gosh you know what a place to work and my, my friend was saying this is the best best place i've ever worked and, you know, uh, I think that uh, SpaceX is a little higher stress because they're meeting all these schedules for different launches and stuff. And they're kind of in the front lines, whereas Blue Origin is privately funded. And so they're they're meeting their targets and they're making they don't have to launch commercial payloads. Uh, but it, it's it's astounding. There's just so much passion in this and to see private space starting just like the uh in the 1920s when the airlines were given contracts to deliver mail you know on these little fabric biplanes and that kicked off the airline industry and so continental and american airlines and united all started in the 1920s as mail carriers with just a few guys and sacks of mail you know and it became airlines in the 30s 40s and 50s and that's what's possibly happening now uh, i'm not sure there's a size of them the, the market's not clear really uh, i don't think people are going to live on mars and the moon anytime soon there's maybe the tourist market and certainly the launch market but it's not as huge as the mail or passenger market was for for airlines you know i i hate to show my ignorance that I, like most people don't like to but but is there does nasa or somebody provide like traffic direction in space are there traffic cops i mean you can't just shoot these things up can you well there's international agreements mm-hmm. uh and there's been a real problem with debris so the indians did an anti-sat test which was very controversial because they ended up creating so much debris that there's one orbit that's now useless and if we keep doing this and we keep having satellite to satellite collisions which are rare but they happen and we keep having this nonsense about uh, at weapons in space, which is complete nonsense, and all this this stuff, we're going to reduce our access or close our access to space. So 
it won't be as dramatic as like the movie Gravity because that was not very realistic, the depiction of that. But when you get hit by debris, like they showed in, it does in the movie that does actually destroy vehicles. Just one little piece, you know, it's traveling at, you know, 50,000 miles an hour the other way and, or, or 10,000 miles an hour, it's a lot of energy. So there's agreements around geostationary orbit where you countries are allowed to park their vehicles. And one of the things that we can do in our, our venture is to move those satellites. So if one has died in geostationary, it's a great big school bus sized thing. It's taking up space and it, it needs to actually move to what's called a graveyard orbit. And we can send our enclosure system up, stop it tumbling because these things start tumbling and they have no control and then gently move it out of that orbit to allow for other other vehicles to go there. So everybody would be happy about that from the military to weather to GPS to, you know, all this, all these people. And now they're launching satellite constellations of hundreds of little ones. So that's changing the landscape, the spacescape again. So you're, the, the company you, you're, uh, you guys are, are uh, looking to possibly form, I, would I be putting down on you too much if I said you're like space junk collectors? <laughs> well, that's a market. Um, yeah. But certainly uh, the junk that's actually satellites that need fuel or need repairs, they're, they're not junk. I mean, some of them, billions of dollars went into those. And uh, we actually even worked out ways to do manufacturing in space of bigger structures and you know that's all carlos's domain but we th we're we think we can get this thing funded and it start the long process of developing it and testing it <clears throat> it'll take 10 to 15 years you know well i hope to be around long enough to see how that comes out bruce <laughs> well, thank you. now be before i'd like to to open it up for questions from other people but first of all uh tell, i'd like to have you uh tell a little bit about uh, getting Terrence into cyberspace for the first time and that the, the time you spent at his house with he and Finn and uh, that, that story really doesn't get told very often. I'd like to have you share it here with the salon. Yeah, um, <clears throat> so uh, I had reached the great age of 36 and I had studiously avoided the elixirs. I like to call them the elixirs because you know, when you call them the medicines, they, they, it is an implication that you're somehow sick, you know, whereas you use the, the druidic term or the um, alchemical term elixir, it's a magic, it's a magic potion, you know, it could heal you, but it can also open up worlds. And I hadn't really gone near them because I could connect with something like this field on my own, on the natch, if you will, that was Terence's term. So I could go into these spaces and I really didn't want to disturb that ability. I was just, but then I, I started listening to Terrence and I met Terrence and I thought, well, this guy's not completely a scrambled eggs. <laughs> and so we made this thing where he, he came to my house here in 98 and we, I sat him down and he was interested in me because I was the maven of avatars and virtual worlds. I'd run the first conferences. I wrote the first book on it. Like sort of helped catalyze it. And so he came and he sat there with Ralph Abraham on one side and Finn on the other. And I put a big CRT monitor and put him into these worlds where there were avatars or users. Some of them were speaking with voice, with lip syncing, 3D. Some of them were building cityscapes. And for him, it was a huge awakening because you know, later I learned about his whole invisible landscapes. Now, what, what year was this so that we can get a technology kind of fix? What, what was available? <clears throat> November of 98. And the previous year in 97, he talked about me because we've been emailing for a couple of years, but he talked about me on Art Bell. Uh, and, and then again on uh, Michael Krasny or some, some show on NPR. So I had no idea it was talking about me on these shows but so he had finally come and we met and then we made this arrangement where he said well I'm going to Mexico to Palenque and we're doing this this conference and you know it happens to be the height of mushroom season there but we there was nothing we could do about that <laughs> typical Terrence thing so anyway uh so he's 
I hadn't planned to go to Palenque and I was ignorant enough not to even know about it. Uh, but it was kind of a mystery school. It was a hermetic kind of an event. It wasn't really widely publicized. So we arranged that I would go out into the wilderness of the Southern Sierra and take his elixirs and go into his worlds. And we would kind of switch places, uh, which I did. And it was pretty phenomenal. It was, it actually uncurled Terrence's hair when I told him what happened. His curly hair got straight suddenly. It was I, I, do, do you want to mention the size of the dose? <laughs> well, it was as much as I could get down. So, because I didn't think any of this would work, you know, it's a famous last words. Because my body scrambles anesthetics really fast and it's a really different chemistry. And um, so I just stuffed myself uh, as much as I could get in. Anyway, but it worked. I dissolved to the void and you know don't try to avoid the void you know <laughs> i just accepted the void so uh, then the the deal was that i would go back to hawaii with jim essex and we would go and stay at terrence's and i reported in uh, the experience of those worlds to him which was pretty shocked about where i went because he had not gone to such a place um which surprised me later, actually. Uh, it's a whole story. But then what we did, the main point was that we went, uh, we built a virtual world so that he could go in as an avatar, which he named Zone Ghost, which I found later in a collection of letters was his dream to become a Zone Ghost of, in cyberspace. And Finn McKenna actually made this hyperboreal gate in active worlds. And Terrence went through it. And a, another user had made a tryptamine-inspired world where Terrence was amazed that he could become the bug-eyed green lawnmower you know <laughs> and uh but he was he chose the gray alien zone ghost and then people flooded in from his list and had a session like a uh, 40 people were there and he actually went out and took a second group of 40 in because it was sort of limited what you could do and it was phenomenal and we have a video of this online it's called Terrence on the Natch, or like so Terrence McKenna on the Natch. And um, it was wonderful. I mean, at the end of that day, it was hours and hours. He was glowing. You know, he, the, there's a picture I put up in, in a still frame of him, like going like this. He was so happy. He was like the elf. He had become the elf. And he had gone into cyberspace, into an invisible landscape, and we compared notes about how how did this compare to you know tryptamine landscapes and and Terence in his inimical way said it was not unlike DMT not unlike DMT and this was in in a way sort of a heartfelt moment because this was his last experience of what he would call novelty I might call tech novelty techno novelty because only six weeks or eight weeks later he had the seizure uh, then Christy had to get him off the mountain and the brain scan and he had this terrible condition and he was gone by April 2000 and we all you and that's where you and I met at Alchemical Arts in September 99 at that hotel that they were going to tear down and we were like the last group and it was a goodbye to Terrence and there were all of Terrence's closest friends reading were there and it was a shock because the meeting had been planned, but we didn't know that it was going to be a goodbye. And it was actually. Yeah, it was kind of a, a tough time, but you know, he handled it really well and uh, every, everybody did. I think it was a, a really interesting conference. And uh, as I told people last week, uh, that's where Terrence told me about Eric Davis and I'd actually gone to the conference to meet you. <laughs> and so the two of you uh, came to me through Terrence McKenna. So uh, uh, we can attribute a lot to Terrence. And, you know, I, I miss him to this day. And, and we had, in at his house, we had talked about going on the road together. And so what happened was he wrote to Nancy Lunny at Esalen. And we were going to do a program at Esalen in March of 2000 which would then allow us to sort of take, and I would start talking about 
technology, because Terrence really had no qualifications to talk about tech. And I remember staying all night with Terrence. I think there's it's in the salon part of this conversation right. uh, where I was saying, Terrence, computers can't do singularities. Like you can't upload load consciousness. It's completely the wrong architecture. It's a fantasy. It's from science fiction. And, you know, he'd been reading articles in Omni magazine and right. Terrence never written a line of code and what was he doing talking about this and and he was very worried about y2k and i told him terrence nothing is going to happen on y2k nothing and then we we ended up shifting into the 2012 thing and i said do you, do you want to create like a new age y2k i mean what not that's that's just ludicrous and so by the by the dawn the dawn was coming over the volcano in hawaii and terrence said well, I hope they don't take it all too literally, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so then uh, he was gone. And I remember uh, we had a vigil for him the night before he passed here at the farm because he'd been here. We had a circle and very emotional and I miss him. And uh, we were going to go on the road and I was going to talk, do the tech talk. So he didn't have to do that. And he was going to talk about hermetics and recipes and and James Joyce and all the things he actually was good at. Um, and then I would do the tech stuff, space and computing and this and that. And just as a follow on, uh, Terrence's idea of novelty and concrescence, you know, the, the Whiteheadian idea, I took that up. So I did my PhD work on that, building the evolution grid in 2007 to 10. And we found the formula for, we believe, for how the universe adds novelty and doesn't lose it, which led into the origin of life, uh, found the actual mathematics of the, <clears throat> the, the, the process, the formalism, which is the basis for this work. So, you know, because I asked the question, well, of course things complexify and there's concrescence, uh, but how, you know, let's actually do the, do the math. And then around 2006, I, five I woke up in bed suddenly with almost with Terrence's voice in my head and I turned to him sort of cognitively and said Terrence you left too soon I'm going to bring you back and all I had was this uh, an FTP folder of, of recordings from cassette and I said this is terrible this man's work is gone we've got to do something and contacted Ralph Abraham and that's when the box of trialogue tapes came and and we and you and I and, and the whole community just started sending these cassette tapes to be digitized and we, we reconstructed Terrence. I mean, and we got a huge cache of them during our special event that we held in 2012. And it's just wonderful. We wanted to bring his voice back and bring put him into cyberspace. So we'd started out putting him in virtual worlds, and then we actually put all of Terrence into cyberspace for all of you. And and I I feel that was a a good and honorable thing to do because um, you know he was very special and uh, he did leave too soon. I just checked and uh, the I, I don't want to put it up on the screen right now. The Terrence McKenna archive on the salon now has two hundred and ninety five recordings in it. So uh, <laughs> with your help and Ralph's and everybody else's, uh, we've, we've done uh, a fairly good job of, of saving him. Uh, there's still more to go, of course. But, you know, let, let me uh, open it up and see if uh, people want to ask questions. You can hit the, uh, the uh, I think, the participant button, and it'll raise your hand, or you can just raise your hand, and I'll see you. It will unmute you, or you can unmute your own mic, I think. This, uh, I'm, I'm scrolling around to see everybody's faces or cartoons here. Um, hey Bruce, I think uh, the intersection of what technology um, comes together in your idea of the Shulgin chip. You, Charles, you're cutting out just a little bit. I was just going to ask Bruce to talk about the Shulgin chip. The Shulgin uh, chip. <laughs> well, that, that's that's my uh, eschaton. You want to hear about it? So um, this is 2014 and. We were having a meeting at Sasha and Ann Shulgin's house about starting a cannabis testing lab with uh, Paul, and they were boiling down CBDs in the lab. And 
he had lunch with with uh, Sasha, and that was the time he was blind. He, he was actually a week from death. We didn't know that week from his passing. So uh, when I was leaving, uh, I because we'd been I'd known Sasha for a while, and I don't know, 15 years or something. And I bent down and I said, Sasha, we just had a lunch about cannabis. And I know it's not your favorite drug at all. It's far from it. He and Anne do not like to get stoned. They, they are tryptamine beings. They want to be highly activated and aware. They don't like the stone state. People don't realize this. Neither of them do uh, did. And I said, but this, this cannabis testing lab idea could finance your research, your research institute to go on. And, and he, he turned to me because he could sense where I was. And he said, sounds great. <laughs> and anyway, that was the last words with, um, with uh, Sasha. And, but as I was leaving, there was this strange image that came into my, my trip to me brain which was this rotating gold uh square rotating gold square but it seemed to be like embedded in my body i was like oh my god now here's another one of these endo trips you know one of these delivery vision things i'll have to figure this one out and a week later we had this big party up in a mountain valley and it suddenly came to me and i was doing a storytelling for the group and i said oh that rotating gold thing was the shulgin chip it was in the 2030s or 2040s you know i won't pick a date don't make that mistake uh <laughs> there's this subcutaneous chip that can make everything in the shulgin index from blood serum you know it just takes stuff in and it's a subcutaneous chip and th these are going to be pretty common in the late 2030s a subcutaneous delivery uh subcutaneous detection of cancers in stream and stuff. As our group at UCSC, uh, Dave invented a technology called nanopore sequencing, which can sequence DNA through a pore and a little device like this. So that, that could go into your body. So anyway, uh, I thought, well, if that's the case, what, how would you run the Shulgin chip? What would that mean for the access to the ether worlds so of the other, you know, not the synchronous field, but the, the high worlds. So I don't know if any of you here have experienced this, but uh, where you get into a state where you're, you're approaching like this infinitude where you open, there's no longer the world. I mean, you're crossed over and you're in the whole, I call it the glassine plane. You're in the highest of the high. And it's astonishing and it's so alien too. And on the way up to it, when this happens to me, on the way to that state, I'm like, oh, my God, I never thought I was going to go back there. I never thought I would ever go back there. And now I am. And every cell in my body is screaming, you know, like, no. And, but you do get there. And it, it, it's, it's just the, the launch is hard. But you're there and you're in this realm. And what I thought at that time was, Maybe that's the starting point for the future. Maybe that's where something like the Shogun chip connected to a, like a Yamulka, like a net of being around your brain that detects your mental organs, detects what the tryptamine is doing to GABA or, you know, activating the, the, the networks of, of uh, neuroreceptors. And it detects it in real time so that it can drive the chip to produce the right thing to go into novel or higher, higher states, maybe like this infinitude state. But what if that, what if that system shared itself with the cloud? So at some point you would get a pop-up in your AR system that says, do you accept this overmind? Yes or no. So you, you, you move your, your eyes over and you click on, yes, I accept the overmind. And your whole state is uploaded to a common state of 3 million people that are doing, uh, running their Shulgin chips. And then what happens is because you have a collective uh, that's adding it all up, you get the greater than the sum of the parts. The whole is much greater, just like the progenote, just like how life began.
and then everyone is cruising to the highest state as a as in a unit through the etheric field, but through also the chemical uh, pathways. And then there's three million people starting at that glassine plane and going from there. And I sort of uh, during my talk in 2014, which we called Sasha's graduation celebration, uh, I I suggested that if we can do this, if we can actually get to that. And all these minds, millions of minds and bodies and souls can enter into that state. We, we wobble the universe itself. We non-locally shake the cosmos and we can open the pore. We can make ourselves known. Uh, because in a sense, you, you ask the question, how can I go to a, a state? And this is a Terence question also. How do I how do I get to a state where I see things that are outside my experience, right? Experience things that are completely outside of my training, my background, and they seem to be delivered from elsewhere. And I think they are delivered from elsewhere. And I think I have a model for how that works. And it and it's simply this: that if you're in that super high state and you get into that super activated state, you're in that state because Neurons, which have little head ends and they have little tendrils, generally they're unidirectional. So electrons are bouncing down sodium channels and they're hitting that gap and it's producing the transmitters and taking signal across the gap. But when they're in a state of shock, like from, for instance, from a strong elixir or a near-death experience or uh, injury or, or even a, a samadhi experience, uh, the system becomes uh, uncertain, it gets wobbled. And when it becomes uncertain, the electrons are like a two slit experiment. They're, they're fanning out. So they, they're, not so, they're not so localized in the channel. They're sort of, everything's wobbling. So, well, they're expressing potential other pathways, you know, Feynman's sum over history thing, this bloom. And that bloom is the, the DMT flash. So when that hits, like, like that, then there's this explosion of, of possibility, but it goes everywhere. And so that, that flash is like, poof. And then as it collapses down, the, the electrons still have to travel in their channels, otherwise you'd be dead, right? But they still bounce around on the guardrails of, of the neurons. But when the, when the wave collapses down, you know, Nick Herbert will probably slap my hand for suggesting this, uh, they smush out probability because the wave function doesn't know the directionality of the electron. So all of the neurons get lit up. They all get lit up with this fantastic potential and the electrons smear out. And so the brain becomes a smeared out thing, which becomes a transceiver. So now it's like very super sensitive because it can wobble with a whole bunch of things. It can wobble with other brains so that in the room, you suddenly have weird phenomena that happen for the group. Uh, it can wobble with non-local things so that maybe the alien spacecraft you're, you're so blown away is an actual alien spacecraft someplace that is, you're able to wobble with because the information is, is there somehow. But it's, it's coming through your filters, you know, through your primate filters. So you're, you know, you might be seeing the mother Mary or Mary Magdalene if you have Christian filters, but you're going to see extraordinary things. And maybe the turned on monkey mind is that, and that we crave that as a species. We're, we're always trying to get to that. You know, sometimes we go the wrong way. We go you know, to alcohol and things that can't get us there. But we do all these practices, you know, Wim Hof breath work, and we do because we're craving that. We're craving that non-dual union that Edgar Mitchell had, you know, in Paul 14 and we're just craving it. We're, we're craving the end of separation, the end of childhood's end, and that we're separate units in this uncaring cosmos, and we want unification. The unification we had when we were in the mother's womb, for example. So perhaps, and this is my wobbly hypothesis on how the extreme high state works and how it non-locally couples, and it may even be testable for all we know, um, um, but that's the Shulgin chip uh, idea for you, Charles, and for everyone. Bruce, uh, I, I realize that uh, 
anybody that, that uh, is hearing this for the first time and doesn't know you or much about this whole group would think that's a pretty fantastical statement. But uh, da- Daniel McQueen, who was here a couple of weeks ago that created the DMTX patch and is uh, leading the, the research uh, project to uh, control the DMT state over an extended period of time and being able to go out of it and come back into it and all, it sounds to me like the work that they're doing, uh, while it's not uh, a patch, a chip, it's it's like the Shogun chip 0.8. You know, it's the lead-in to it. And while everything that you said sounds fantastical, uh, I'd like everybody to remember they're talking to me, a guy who, when I was growing up, thought the Dick Tracy two-way radio was too fantastical to really happen. And right now we have people from New Zealand and Canada and all over the U.S. and, and Hawaii, all in a video conference that's uh, a lot better than that Dick Tracy two-way radio. So uh, I, I agree with you. We shouldn't make the Terrence mistake of setting a date. But personally, the way things have been going, uh, 2030 to 2040 does not seem out of range. <laughs> Now here's here's a fun one for you. Maybe I'll get a, a movie script out of this deal, or Namaz Ram will give me a writing contract, or we'll co-write the book. Because you know his books are a lot about this sort of stuff, and I'm super inspired by by him. Uh, well, what if in 2039, in a ver- version of Blade Runner, but it's Blade Runner at the level of blood corpuscles? Uh, you, if you have a shulgin, an illicit shulgin chip, you also have embedded technology that's keeping you alive that comes from big pharma. But there are all these agent cops that are trying to detect the presence of the shulgin chip. And so inside your body, you have this massive high bandwidth network going on with bots and little things in the bloodstream and in and, and implants and stuff. And, and they're all, there's a cyber war going on inside you to determine whether these chemicals are coming, that they're still scheduled. Maybe nothing will be scheduled by then, I don't know. Uh, but as you go between countries or states, you know, the Shulgin chip has to cloak itself because you're in a regime where that that uh, compound is scheduled. Uh, or uh, you're going into mental states that are not permitted in certain states, in certain uh, nations or in certain companies. And so there's all this detection of people's uh, states of mind. And then we're going to end up being like the shamans in, in Peru, where their guys are supposedly freaking meeting each other in these ayahuasca uh, spaces and doing battles sometimes, you know. You're talking about uh, real life video so, games. You know, yeah, I'm just thinking that uh, the future is stranger than we can suppose. And, and this is a Ramaz Nam type of novel. And, and by the way, uh, talking about uh, science fiction, I just uh, read today that there's a new uh, prototype contact lens out that if you double blink, it zooms in for you. So uh, all of these <laughs> additions to our body are going to be coming soon, uh, sooner than we expect, I think. So I, I, we're kind of running out of time here tonight, and uh, I, I do want to let you all know that... Uh, uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, we will be having Ann Shulgin here. I just heard from Tanya Manning today, and she and Greg and Ann are uh, trying to figure a date that they can be in here. So in the next few weeks, we'll have uh, have them in here to talk about the Shulgin things. And and Bruce, of course, we've had you in the salon, and you've been sort of a co-founder of the salon. I, I really appreciate your time being here tonight, and, uh, and I'm sure uh, you'll come back. I'm sure you will if we, we can talk you into it, right? Yeah, thank you all. I'm sorry I monopolized uh, all the time uh, for questions. Uh, but uh, by the way, I have my friend has convinced me to start a Patreon. So uh, if you look at Bruce Damer, uh, uh, I would really appreciate any support. Right now, I literally have no uh, support uh, for this work. And we're trying to stand up a community here. And this is a new building behind me that we're building for me to live in on the land here near Santa Cruz. And so he said, start a Patreon, and so I have, and that'll give you access to a whole bunch of stuff, including regular conversations with me and visits to the DigiBarn and the Tim Leary Archive, and I can come and speak at, at conferences and and the Levity Zone podcast. Uh, you'll get early versions of that. 
So uh, anyway. Uh, and, and you find it the same way you found me, patreon.com slash, this time, all lowercase, one word, Bruce Damer, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. I'll, I'll put that link in the program notes, too, and so uh, we can all find it. Uh, I appreciate everybody being here tonight. And uh, uh, next next Monday, by the way, you know, Rick Strassman will be here, and uh, I'll keep you informed. And then sometime uh, once a few of these other projects of yours come uh, to fruition or start rolling down the road, I'd like to get you back here, Bruce, and you can give us an update on it. Yeah, we've got one rolling with AI with Google right now to trying to yeah. transform AI, so we'll report on that. Def definitely. Be sure to let me know when you've got a, something that we can talk about on that one. That, that's one of my hot buttons right now. So, Okay. Well, listen, everybody, uh, we're going to call it a night for right now, but uh, until next week, keep the old faith and stay high. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>